Hey, hey, any youth leaders out there? Yep, serving with youth in the church? Serving with youth in the church is probably one of the most enjoyable callings, but it brings with it a lot of responsibility. How do we effectively lead this rising generation? Well, I have good news for you. Leading Saints has organized the Young Saints Virtual Library, where we have 20 plus hours of presentations all about how to lead youth. We cover topics like how to help youth transition into adulthood, how to help them avoid loneliness, how to handle smartphones in class, and we even go over scientific data about how Latter-day Saint youth differ from other youth. If you'd like to review the Young Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash 1-4. Today I'm in Park City, Utah in the home of Elder Don Clark. How are you? I'm doing terrific. How are you doing? Great. We're glad to have you in our home and I appreciate the opportunity yeah. to share this time with you. Yeah, I was glad that the the canyon wasn't too snowy coming up, but it's a, it's a little uh, frigid out there. It's a winter day. And, and are you originally from this area or how did you land here uh, in Park City? So I grew up in Rexburg, Idaho. Oh, nice. Population uh, 5,000 back then. My dad was a bricklayer. I was a hot carrier. That's why I studied really hard. I didn't need to want to be a hot carrier. <laughs> and But I loved growing up in Rexburg, Idaho. It my grandfather, my grandmother died when I was two years old, and my grandfather lived with us. He was a patriarch, a blind patriarch. Oh, really? He for, uh, I guess, uh, he was a patriarch for 30 years. He was blind for 60-some years of his life. Yeah. So it was a great place to grow up. I had wonderful people. There's, in fact, there's a great story. Maybe I can yeah, just jump please. in. So when I was in high school, I was a basketball player, a football player, and a and a baseball player. Oh, wow. In fact, I was captain of all three teams. I had never in my life ever thought about running for a, an office, a student body office. And our principal, Hal Barton, came to me and he said, Don, I'd like you to run for student body vice president. And that had not been on my radar, okay? <laughs> but I ran. And uh, in fact, we had two parties. And so we, I uh, was able to be student body president. And I... Uh, had to take, I had to direct all the assemblies or presided all the assemblies and introduce people. In fact, I was looking through some of my stuff the other day. I have a picture from Miss Idaho, Don, because she came and spoke. <laughs> oh, cool. And, but that made a huge difference for me because uh, having to get up in front of people, playing in front of people, not a problem. Yeah. But having to get up and talk and do all that stuff is a good step. And so, one of the great things that leaders do is they care of how people become better. Mm. So, in my case, Hal Barton principal of the high school, cared about Don Clark. And it made a difference mm. in eternity. Now, that's a school story, but it's not. It's a God story. Yeah. Because that's what God does all day long, is he cares about whether we get better and how we move forward. And that's what people that are leaders, that's what they do. They care passionately about individuals. Yeah. And that set you off into a trajectory that you probably wouldn't have discovered on your own, right? Whoever would have guessed. Yeah. Because you... who, who would ever guess a little boy from Rexburg, Idaho? <laughs> we were kind of almost poor. Would have better ended up doing all the things that have happened in my life. And all of that happened because of people yeah. and because of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It provides us a way to do things that 
no other organization does. We, I was in charge of VIP Church hosting for a period, and we had these Jewish leaders come and meet with us. They had two questions of how we got things done. The first question is, how do you get people to pay tithing? And the question is, is the real question is, how do you get them to love God mm -hmm. so that they follow God? But that was question number one. The second question, how do you get your young people to go on missions? They have a program. They send them out for a couple of weeks, I think, to Jerusalem, to Israel or something. How do you get all these young people to dedicate this time? And so uh, you know, I look back on my mission. I was a missionary in Argentina. And President Hinckley said it. Elder Paulin says it. It changed eternity for Don Clark. I was, one time I was a zone leader. I didn't see the mission president the whole time I was a zone leader. Oh, wow. I had 50 missionaries and I learned some goods and some bads, but those were wonderful opportunities for, for Don Clark. Yeah. So during the, those developmental years, pretty traditional Latter-day Saint uh, upbringing in Rexburg, Idaho, very faithful upbringing? Well, yes, I was very, I, you know, always active in the church. My mother was Relief Society president. My grandfather, as I said, was patriarch. At one time, he'd give more patriarchal blessings than any patriarch in the church, except the patriarch of the church, mm -hmm. 3,500. Wow. And then when he was 87 years old, in one month, he gave 27 patriarchal blessings. Wow. That's what I said. Yeah. My grandfather was an icon, poor, but an icon because he wasn't poor spiritually. Yeah. Even though he was blind, he had spiritual eyes that I could tell you story after story. But, yeah. But my father was less active in the church. My dad went on a mission, always paid his tithing. We always had family prayer. In fact, we'd pray for church leaders. I, when I was a bishop, I'd know whether people liked their leaders or not by how the kids prayed, because <laughs> we prayed every night yeah. for our bishop and our stake president. Mm. And, but he smoked, and he'd go to church, and I don't know whether he'd always sometimes maybe be treated like a black sheep instead of a lost sheep. He loved to fish, and he always went fishing with people that smoked. So I've always thought it would, maybe it would have been good if some non-smokers would have invited my dad to go fishing. Hmm. That's where he picked up the habit? Is I don't know. Friends Working, he was, a, he was a construction worker, mm -hmm. so that's probably where he picked it up. But I came to know the Doctrine and Covenants as a great promise. In section 100, because it happened for me, Sidney and Joseph were going on a mission. The church was poor. People were sick. Mm-hmm. And so the Lord spoke to Sidney and Joseph, and verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my friend Sidney and Joseph, I put my there my name Don. Your families are well, and they are in my hands, and I will do with them as seemeth me good, for in me there is all power. And then he tells in verse 3 what you have to do to get the blessing. Behold, I have much people in the places region round about. Or for me, it was in Argentina. I worked hard. I was a diligent B.W. missionary. Perfect? No. But while I was on my mission, my dad came active in the church because he had a great stake president that loved him. You know, this principle of love uh, permeates everything. You know, God said it's the first commandment and the second is like and love the Lord thy like God. And then the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody needs to be loved. Yeah. You know, sometimes we have this list of we call do not contacts. Mm -hmm. God does not have do not contacts. And I don't found, I've never found anybody. They give me all the people that nobody wants to see. <laughs> but I've never found anybody that doesn't need to be loved. Yeah. And once they know you love them, then it changes. But sometimes we go visit them, and then they tell us not to come back. And what do we do? We go away. So what does it tell them? I was an assignment. He didn't come because he loved me. 
I'm not even sure he came because he loved God the way he should have. And so I found I could tell you home teaching story after home teaching story of, um, of miracles that happened because I, I've only had a gun pulled on me once ever. But, but wow. it's, you know, that's not true. I mean, I'm just telling you. <laughs> okay. But the answer is it's a good deal. So Yeah. So uh, with that the relationship between your father and the stake president, you know, because we hear about this this concept of love and leaders should love and it sometimes gets so overstated and most leaders think, well, of course I love my people, but maybe illustrate that through how did that stake president go about reaching your father and reactivating him? Well, I'm sure, first of all, I think one thing that happens, just like in missionary work or anything else, is there's a time and a place when God prepares people. Mm -hmm. So somehow my stake president figured out that my dad was doing better. Maybe this would be the time. And plus there was a son in Argentina praying. Yeah. Plus there was somebody up in heaven who cared about Don's dad. Yeah. And so because heaven cared and Don cared maybe more than he had in the past and stake president was sensitive and somehow it all just came together. Yeah. So when you came home from your mission, was it, uh, is that sort of when it was your father was going to church with you every week and it was right. uh, plus he had a temple recommend so yeah and uh, lived his life faithful and this oh yeah. yeah eventually he had a major heart attack when he was 65 and hmm. for five years he couldn't hardly do anything in fact he was brought to see uh, President Nelson who was one of the heart leading heart guys to see if they could do anything for him and couldn't do anything for him but so he died when he was about 70 hmm. but active in the church wow great story so where does your leadership, like, is there, obviously you talked about being a zone leader on your mission. Was there a calling where you can go back to and say, that's sort of when my leadership journey began, or maybe it was a, a, an experience in your professional life? Yeah, I think that's a good, very good question. It's just like some people ask me, well, when did you kind of know the church was true? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I just always believed. Now, no is a different word than believe, but leadership for me, I think, I was involved in leadership in my quorums in the church, but I don't know, remember much about that. Mm -hmm. You know, today we try to encourage everybody to have their to, to shadow leadership to help you really help those, but I don't think that was existed back there. As I mentioned, I was captain of the three sports teams, and and um, and that made a difference. Okay, but uh, once again, I'm not sure I really caught on. But I think what I really caught on to was the day that uh, I became a zone leader, I think, or a district leader, when it really mattered, and uh, trying to figure out how you help missionaries, because they're not all the same, mm -hmm. and how you really try to, to help them. And, but I don't know that, you know, I think I was, I'm not sure I learned the great principle, the love, the way I should have until later in my life. Certainly when I became a bishop, changed uh, for me. Yeah. And certainly along the way it changed, but, um, you know, and then I've always been given opportunities to do things. And one of the great blessings that happened, Mary Ann and I, I, we, I went to Rick's College and I went to BYU. I met my wife, Mary Ann. In, in my history, there's a chapter called, Look What She Did With Me, okay? So <laughs> that probably has a lot more meaning than anybody else. So she was, she's made a huge difference. And that's another principle I'd like to talk about is who you associate with. Okay, whether it's your friends, for those that aren't married, or whether it's your wife, if you're married, you need to know that she, that partner, those people that care, really, really matter. And if, because if you're just kind of on your own, nobody really corrects you and gets you straightened around a little bit when you're off. 
And, um, but Marianne's just been, uh, and plus they, she just, she was willing to go anywhere. And so we went to Washington, we graduated, we got married. Well, she had promised her dad that she wouldn't get married until after she graduated from college. <laughs> so we were engaged a year and something. I told them Joseph waited, you know, so many days for so many, but uh, okay, so yeah. Israel. But anyway, so anyway, then we went to Washington State. I had a teaching assistantship and we had no money, so that's where we needed to go. And I didn't believe in debt, still don't. Yeah. And then we went to work for Ford Motor Company in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So I'm in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and we're meeting in a Methodist church because we don't have a church. And I become, first of all, the young men's president. Then I become the elder scorn president. And we had some wonderful activities. We had these people coming back to church. I know some people don't like the sports program of the church, but for us, it was good. Ypsilanti, we win the basketball tournament. We'd win the softball tournament. We'd win the volleyball tournament. Vlad Cadell came back. He's just recently was released as a counselor in the state presidency. Uh, he came to my office a few years ago. But that all happened. And then I get called to go on the high council. Now, here I'm at 20-some-odd years old. And I'm called to be, you know, if I'd have stayed in Utah, who knows, what, I'd probably been the nursery leader, although I'd like to be the nursery leader. Sure, now, but, yeah. But, yeah, so I'm 27 years old or something like that. And I get called to be on the high council, and I'm the state young men's president. Hmm. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. So I'm in, when I was in junior high, you had two choices in junior high. You could either take a band for a full year or choir for a half a year and shop for a half a year. I chose the lesser of two evils, shop and choir. <laughs> okay. First half of the year was shop. And when you did that, then we get done. And then what happens? We get to uh, choir. So the first thing they're going to do is have trials for an operetta. So we get done with all the tryouts, and pretty soon he assigns all the parts, and there's my buddy Alan and I here. And he says, can I see you two after class? He assigned us to be the ushers. Now roll forward to where I'm a high councilman and back in uh, Michigan. Uh -huh. I'm speaking in Toledo, Ohio, and I look out in the audience. Guess who's in the audience? Alan. My choir teacher. Oh, your choir my teacher. My choir teacher. <laughs> I said, I have a story to tell today. So I told the story of how he didn't help my career in singing at all. Because <laughs> he assigned you as an usher. Right? That's right. That's how good my voice is. So today, I just, today I just mouth the words when, yeah. when yeah. I'm sitting next to somebody important. Nice. <laughs> and then, so then when did the opportunity to serve as bishop? Was it in that area? Or no, you, no, okay. no, no, no. So we were there and then we moved to Scottsbluff, Nebraska. And in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, I was assigned to home teach the Joy family. So the Joy family would live about 10 miles outside the city. So we went, visited them every month. And pretty soon I'm called to be the young men's president, Scott's Bluff. So what did I do? I got the Joy kids to come to church. Over time, pretty soon the whole family's come to church and they're reactivated. We moved to St. Louis, Missouri from Scott's Bluff and they moved somewhere. So Marianne or I are on a trip to Spain and we're down on the southern part of Spain, on the southern part. And we, I asked people, where do the Mormons meet? Excuse me, the Church of Jesus right. Christ of Latter-day Saints. But back then it was right, the Mormon. Right. And so they said, well, they, I think on the second floor of that building over there. So we go up there. Guess who's a missionary? One of the Joy Boys. Oh, wow. Now you just think of the, here, God lets you know what you do that really matters. The chances of us finding in the little town in southern Spain, not even a big town, yeah, where the Joy Boy was. Now I'll tell you a story that even is better than that. So roll forward to Sandy Hook. That's what happened in Connecticut. Yeah. All those kids were killed. 
One of the young people, one of the students that was killed in that uh, horrible event was somebody that had just moved there from Ogden, Utah. So we're now assigned to go. So they brought the, they were going to have the funeral in Ogden. I was kind of in the leadership of Utah, and so I was assigned a couple of company, Elder Cook of the Corner of the Twelve. He was going to speak at the funeral. So I go early to make sure everything's going to be okay. I go in and guess who the bishop is? Another one of the Joy Boys. Oh, wow. So, God, God's constantly intervening and reminding you. He's, he's, of how important yeah. all this stuff is. And then when my, when my a friend that was helping me, somebody in church history was helping me rewrite my personal history, he found when this guy was called to the state presidency, and when you're called to be in the state presidency, you write a little history of your life. So in, that, in my history is this little blob about how they had a, a very good home teacher and a young men's president that helped bring all this family back into the church. Hmm. Nice. So, so, and then as far as like being called as bishop from that, that so family. So, yeah. yeah. So now I go to, so we moved to St. Louis, Missouri, and that's where I get to call, call the bishop. And at the same time, I get to, I become chairman of a company. And I also learned a lot about leadership. I've never found any good business principles that work that don't also have scriptural references. Yeah, them. yeah. Okay. And so I was, I was, I became, a, I went to work for a big department store chain called May Company, and I became the, uh, eventually, when Famous Bar, I became the chief financial officer and executive vice president. And I, t I f what I found is they had all these little areas that reported to me that hadn't made a lot of progress over time, and I found that you could improve things, you know. There's always a better way. And mm -hmm. if you're saving more, 10 times your annual salary, there's not a, you know, nobody's going to let you go because you're, you're worth a lot of money to <laughs> yeah. the people. Yeah. And so I was able to take these people that had people kind of ignored and they, they weren't seen as, you know, up and comers and help them understand that they had power and they could do things. And so they all of a sudden, you know, we took these areas and this improved and this improved. And so it allowed the things happen. And I, so, but it was all because if a leader is able to get everybody to improve a little bit, it's much better than him improving twice as good as he is. Yeah. But some people get promoted, and first thing they do is what? Try to work harder mm. rather than trying to get everybody else to be just a little bit better, Yeah. as President Hinckley would say when, yeah. we, when we left conference. He didn't say a lot. He said a little bit better. <laughs> and, and so when you work with someone like that and you're, you're striving to get them to be a little bit better, like what does that look like in practice, or, or how do you go about doing that? Sure. So I think, first of all, you have to give them a vision of what can be done. Mm -hmm. Because it's kind of just been this way forever. Okay, just kind of been this way. Status quo type. Just kind of been this way. Okay, and they, they hang on because who knows why they hang on. But you have to give them a vision. It says in Proverbs, without vision, the people perish. God, you know, what did he do? What's one of the first things he did with Moses? Moses 139. Okay. Yeah. Stated his vision, right? That gives him a vision. Yeah. Okay. Here's what you can become. And all of a sudden, then Moses says, well, I never even thought that was even possible. Never entered my mind. So for some of these areas, they never thought that that was even possible. Hmm. And so then we said, all right, so now we have a vision. And then what you start to do is once you have a vision, then you help people start to set goals and objectives mm -hmm. that can make a difference. And the trouble is a lot of things. We, we have, if you look at yourself today, I don't know whether you started today with a list, but, but I started today with a list, okay? <laughs> and yeah. if your missionary has 10 things on his list, he'll start with number 10, lunch. And you don't want to start with number 10. 10 is not <laughs> going to change anything. Yeah. 
So you want to start with what's the most important, really to figure out what's really going to make a difference because you can't have 10 priorities. You can have four, five, three. I don't know what the number is for everybody, but you got to decide what really matters. For example, in life, if the most important thing is you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then it changes what you do. It changes whether or not the book is important to you, the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. It changes you not whether you're going to do Come Follow Me with your wife, which we spend about an hour, an hour and a half every day on that. Okay? It determines because if not, then the world will take your time. Okay? The world will take your time. In fact, I have a quote here. Maybe I can. Yeah. This is what President Nelson said. He said this. He says, prayer is the key. Pray to know what to stop doing and what to start doing. Pray to know what to add to your environment and what to remove so the Spirit can be with you in abundance. Plead with the Lord for the gift of discernment. Then live and work to be worthy to receive that gift so that when confusing events arise in the world, you will know exactly what is true and what is not. Serve with love. Yeah, there it is again. There it is. (laughs) Loving service to those who have lost their way, who are wounded in spirit, opens your heart to personal revelation. I'll comment on that in a minute. Spend more time, much more time, in places where the Spirit is present. That means time with friends who are seeking to have the Spirit with them. Spend more time on your knees in prayer. More time in the Scriptures. More time in family history work. More time in the temple. And here's the great promise. I promise you that as you consistently give the Lord a generous portion of your time, He will multiply the remainder. Hmm. It's powerful. I found that was true with me. I mean, listen, I'm not, I had to work hard. Of all the things my father did for me, he taught me how to work hard. Mm -hmm. And one of the great travesties of the world today is that everybody, most people don't love to work. I tell people if a a job is 51% good, it's a great job. Mm -hmm. And they just don't love work. I've learned to love work. And, you know, does that mean everything about work is enjoyable? Absolutely not. But I love work. Mm -hmm. And I love to see what work can do in the church, out of the church, in your personal life, with your family. It's all work. Yeah. You know, it's work in my glory to bring the past immortality of men. So the work is not a bad word. Somehow, if he can use it, I guess we could use it. And so there was a survey done some years ago that said 85% of the people are waiting for five o'clock to come so they can go home. Yeah. 10% more or less like their job and 5% love their job. Okay. I... I loved my job. And I had to be successful, I had to spend lots of time at work. So I had to count on the Lord multiplying my others. And I was bishop at the same time that yeah. I'm running a company. And then I'm stake president at the same time I'm running a company. And, you know, you've got lots to do. Lots to do. And yeah. Everybody thinks running a company is the perks. You know? I mean, in fact, this is not just perks. Let me tell you, there's a lot of headaches and whatnot. Okay? Yeah, I bet. Especially yeah. when they send you to take over a company that, is doing awful. So that was a bad experience, yeah. but I'll tell you about that. But but this is this is what really can happen. And so you've got to say, okay, once you have a vision, then you've got to make sure you do the right things. You've got to have the right vision. And people have mission statements for their families and, mm-hmm. and things like that, which are good. And then you have that vision. Then you ever, then you start measuring what you're doing as it relates to the vision. Everybody said, you know, I want to become God someday. Well, how much time are you spending at doing that? Okay. And more importantly, it's fascinating to me that sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm just not like that. You know, you, you want to be God, but you're just not like that. We mm-hmm. can change who we are, yeah. especially with help from heaven. 
And he has power to do things. Just look what he did with Moses. Look what he did with Enoch. I mean, Enoch says, hey, I, this isn't my deal. I Listen, I'm young and I, I really, I'm really, people don't like me. Okay. And then he takes Enoch and makes him. And then you read in, in here in chapter seven of what happened. And Enoch become this person that God made. And the reason why, because he was willing to do exactly what President Nelson said here. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go back to the, the, that vision concept. But when you're working with someone, helping them to see vision, is it more of an exercise of sort of pulling that vision out of them, trying to understand their background, their, their, their desires and whatnot, and then help formulate that? Or do you help supplement that vision with-, with well, This is really important. That's a very good question. When I, so when I was running a company, I had seven, seven eight direct reports. Mm-hmm. They're all different. If you treat all people the same- Good luck. And some people say, I'm the boss. You're going to adjust to me. The best way to look at that is if I'm the boss or I'm the leader is a better word, I guess. If I'm the leader, I'm going to learn how each of them think. And if you look at it, that's how kind of God does it. Yeah. He takes us, whoever we are, wherever we are, and starts to work with us in line with who we are. And if so there were some people that reported to me that if you if you pushed them too hard, it just didn't work. You had to stroke them and blah, blah, blah. And there were other people, if you didn't kick them in the pants a little bit, it didn't work either. <laughs> yeah, right. So you have to know who your who the players are. And then what the other thing that's really important in this whole business of leadership, you have to want to know what people really think. Hmm. You cannot lead when people are not willing to tell you what the, what really is true. Yeah. So how how's that done? Is that done through consistent one-to-one interviews or social events or how do you uh, how do you know how they think it, yeah so i'll tell you two stories okay so i'm a mission president i'm brand new in bolivia right in bolivia santa cruz they're going to build a temple nice and so it's a wonderful place to be the living people are the poorest people in all of central and south america we used to ride on the back of motorcycles as taxis because there's no cars oh wow oh yeah my wife she'll tell you a story after story <laughs> she loved that huh? picture in here oh i loved it she didn't like it so much <laughs> She threatened her children if they ever rode motorcycles. Now she can't do that anymore. <laughs> but anyway, so we're in Bolivia, and I've been there about a month. Okay, and man, I had talked to lots of mission presidents. I found one that was really good. Um, he eventually became my counselor when I was area president. Oh, nice. So he was sharing ideas. He said, Don, take a, take a projector with you so you have PowerPoints. And so I had a projector, and everybody said, how does Clark get a projector? I brought it with me. Okay, they thought I was getting special favors or something. <laughs> but so then we're and man, I've got I've got my first zone conference on the atonement set up to PowerPoints, and the guy before me didn't have it. So I mean, it was good. And so about a month or so in the mission, this missionary comes in, Elder Crane knocks on the door, and I said, "Yes, Elder Crane." He said, "I need to talk to you, President." I said, "Come on in." He said, "Elder Crane, you're not teaching your not treating your wife good enough. I'll be eternally grateful for Elder Crane. First, that he knew he could talk to me." And second, that he did. So I wasn't treating her bad. The problem was I was more interested in stuff than I was in her. Hmm. Okay? So that's what happens if, you're, if you can create an environment that people think they can tell you what they really think. But most people are afraid to do that. Hmm. They're afraid they'll get fired. They're afraid they'll get demoted. They're afraid you can't. Story number two. My, my counselor when I was a bishop was Preston King. Preston King's son was Eric King. And so when I moved, we moved from St. Louis, and he became eventually the bishop after two times after that. We moved to St. Louis, excuse me, we moved to Connecticut from St. Louis. And one summer, his son, Eric, who was a phenomenal young man, came to live with us because he wanted an internship to work at our company. So he lived with us, ate our food, 
worked at the company I was running. And so one night I get a call from uh, from Preston. He said, Don, he said, Eric just called me. I said, well, yeah. He said, we'd like having Eric here. He said, well, Eric just called and said, you're not treating your sons good enough. I thought, working at my company, eating <laughs> our food, sleeping in my house. But I was eternally grateful for Eric King that he, and for Preston, more importantly, he thought he could call and tell Don what the real scoop was. Mm. And what's happened in most places, they don't dare. I mean, I've watched sometimes people just don't dare say what they really think. Yeah. And it's like like that feedback that not only feedback from those, you know, your higher ups, but from feedback from the intern. Oh, right? yes. That's living oh, with oh, you. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so those those things are leadership principles. Because if you, if you can create a, an environment wherever you're working that people can be candid with you, you have power when you know what people think. Mm-hmm. You have power. If you don't know what the worst thing in the world is for them to say, I like you, and then you know behind your back they're yeah. not saying that. Yeah. Now, that's very difficult to do because you have to really be willing. And as I said earlier, I said, you know, so when people used to complain and when I ran a big company, everybody didn't agree. I'm not sure in my war when I was bishop, everybody agreed. Mm-hmm. But they had different opinions. Yeah. And you have to listen to the opinions. And if they're right, you change. And if they're not right, in Spanish, you say, que me importa, but in English, that means what does it matter to me? Yeah. And so you can't let other people determine your happiness. You can't let other people determine whether you feel good about yourself. My life is really made up of five parts. This is my life. My relationship with, with Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. My family. That's number two. Number three is your work, your college, school, whatever else it is. Number four are friends. And number five is yourself. Every, all the time you spend is in one of those five things. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I found if your relationship is good in all of these things, you have a great life. When people get out of kilter, what they do is they become works becomes more important than anything else. Mm-hmm. And then their family goes down that has problems as well as, well as the relationship with God. And then you, friends are people that make you better. So you hang out with people that make you better that are like Preston King that will you tell him to really want you to be better. Because if you love people, then you really want them to be better. And that's why if you care passionately about people that work in your environment, you always want them to be better. But it's really sad. Here's what I've watched. And I didn't learn this until later. I mean, I didn't learn this when I was really young. But what happens is that people let people perform at mediocrity and don't do anything about it. Then what happens? Then comes a layoff. Who gets laid off? The mediocre people. They never knew they were mediocre. Hmm. One time in, in my professional career, I was working with May Company. May Company bought a great big company, Associated Dry Goods. One of the divisions of Associated Dry Goods was a discount store chain called Caldor. So they sent us, some of us, out to fix what they had bought. Back then, there were 14 discount store chains. I think we were the worst performing of all 14. Mm, wow. It was not pretty. And it wasn't all fun. I bet. But so we get there and then we send out the reviews of how they evaluate themselves. Everybody is exceptional or very good. Now, how can everybody that's exceptional be very good, be running the poorest discount store company in the United States? You have to be responsible for what you're doing. And if things are not going well, then it reflects. And if you're the leader, then you have to be accountable. Yes. And it's really hard the first time you figure that out. Because you can be very good and be working very hard and have a bad year. Okay? Mm-hmm. That just happens. And so when you have a bad year, 
you now have to become, I'm not exceptional anymore. Okay. I'm not exceptional anymore. I may have our exceptional qualities, but somehow we just didn't get it done this year. And so you want to be a fair evaluator. And if people help you understand that, then you can make progress that nobody else can. Yeah. Plus you have great power when you know what people really think. You have power because then you can help them. If you don't know what they really think, you can't help. Yeah. And so going back to that, you know, getting to know how people think with the, uh, when you love people, you love people by wanting them to be better. And I wonder, like, is there a way that you can do that effectively? Because sometimes maybe some people think, man, I'm, you know, with Elder Clark, I'm never, he's never satisfied with me. He always wants more and more and more, right? Like, so how do you. That's very good. So my mission theme was this with my elders. Yeah. Happy, always, content, never. Happy, always, content, never. Okay. So it's never good enough. But listen, we want to be perfect. So right now, <laughs> what we what happens in what happens sometimes in church, we talk about everything way up here, so people get depressed. Yeah, I don't want people depressed. I want people to say, "Here's where we're at." President Hinckley used to say it after every conference. We want you to be a little bit better. He never said a lot, so you want to be a little bit better, so you want to make progress. And so, what you have to learn to do with people, you have to start with where they are. I had many Latin missionaries, and I had many North American missionaries. North American missionaries had different opportunities than some of my Latins. Mm-hmm. So I was my job was to do in two years with my Latin missionaries what North Americans had done in 19 years mm. with their kids. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But so you've got to say, okay, this is where Tom Sanoff, this is where he is. Okay. Now, do I think that Tom Sanoff wants to be better or not? So once you understand that now, he's getting opportunities he's never had before. He can do things if he wants to that's never had before. Now, if he doesn't want to, then I have another problem and we'll just move on. Yeah. But if he wants to, I'm willing to take a shot. So I used to teach missionaries. You teach those that can change and those that want to change. Missionaries spend time many times with people just to get count lessons. Mm-hmm. So you have to decide, does this, is he potentially can't even prove and does he want to? And I'm going to let him know that I care, that this area now is important to me. It's never been important to anybody before. But we're going to show the company that this area can make a huge difference. Now, who doesn't want to shine up for that vision? Yeah. Vision. Who does not want to sign up? If he doesn't want to sign up, then I got a bigger problem and I'm willing to move on. Yeah. But most people want to and most people can't. Some people can't and some people don't want to. If you spend time with them, good luck. Yeah. And it's almost like you're, you're communicating that their potential to them that maybe they've forgotten. Yes. Yeah. Because it's just been this way. Nobody cared before. Yeah. So all of a sudden they got Don Clark who really wants to, things to improve because I also, I want him to feel better, but I also want to, you know, I, I want to get promoted too. Okay. <laughs> now in the church, it's a different thing, but the process is the same. Yeah. Okay. You want people to improve. And so, for example, this, uh, I was, I told you I was mentoring some mission presidents. So we were talking the other day with one of them and he says, um, he says, how do you get people he said, he said, I was, he said, I had three mission presidents. Two of them were phenomenal trainers. We're talking about training. Phenomenal. He said, you go and you just feel terrific. And then he said, then he would turn the time over to us as assistants. And I was a lousy trainer. So I said, all right. So I said, okay. So he said, how do you get people below you, zone leaders, uh, district leaders, uh, assistants and presidents to be better trainers? So I said, well, did your mission president ever tell you that you were not very good? No. Did he ever try to help you? No. So he just let him be the same, afraid that he would offend or something. I don't know. Trying to help people be better, I guess, can offend, but that's what God does. And so sometimes maybe 
we have people that God's trying to make it better that get a little offended too. Yeah. But he said, those who I love, I chasten. Those who I love, I share the truth with so they can get better. Yeah. And it's almost you step into that, you know, you want them to be better, which could lead to offense. But when you step into it from that perspective of love and and like, I, I'm doing this because I love you and I see potential in you, not because I just want higher numbers, right? No. Yeah. Some of that, but not all of it. Uh-huh. But the thing is, <laughs> if not, when I go away, next guy comes in and finds out this isn't doing very well, what's his risk? He'll get fired. And it's, a, it's just a travesty to me that people have had people reporting to him for years yeah. that they've never been honest with about what they, who they really are. And when that opportunity comes, when you have to fire somebody, because God doesn't fire, but in business they do, okay? Yeah, yeah, they do. Then that's who's going. Right. And you could have saved them if they wanted to. Yeah. You could have, or at least you could have helped. You couldn't save them personally, but you could have helped them become different. Because Tom Sanoff became different. Yeah. And he went from this to, you know, working more hours, caring more. I was called on to go to the principal's company. They have various divisions make up. And I was called to go to the uh, principal's, you know, all the chairman and the presidents of all the companies to uh-huh. make a presentation on what we had done with Tom Sanoff's area. Wow. What we done. Yeah. Tom and I. Right. Well, Tom and I and all the other people were there. So it's it's a phenomenal deal if you really understand it, but but you have to be willing you have to be willing to listen to and say, okay, Don, this doesn't work very well here. Yeah, and then you have to evaluate because he may be right and he may be wrong. Yeah, then you evaluate and you change. But more importantly, you give people a vision of who they can become, and you know we believe that people can become more. They don't you don't have to stay who you were. I mean, look at Enoch. I mean, Enoch slow of speech. He didn't end up being too slow of speech. Okay. Yeah. These yeah. people became something that nobody would have ever guessed. And who would have guessed? I was a little boy. I used to stutter. My mother worried about it. I didn't like to talk in front of people. Now you can't. I can talk as long as you want <laughs> right. in yeah, Spanish and English. Yeah. Yeah. And most people like it. Or yeah. some, not some, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I just really appreciate breaking that down because there is this feeling of, well, I, you know, I don't want to get after this person or hurt them or offend them. And so I'm just going to you know, love them from a distance, encourage them. But in doing that, we're actually hurting them more than what any of these other things. I just think if you watch somebody's marriage is not very good and you're a leader. And then two years later, it's a divorce. Maybe it could have been different. Yeah. Maybe it could have been different. Yeah. And it gets messy stepping into those conversations, but it's worth the mess, right? It's worth the mess. Yeah. But once again, you got to find the cans and the wannas. Yeah. That's the way I say it. I mean, you'd say those that really can do it and those that have capability to do it. Yeah. Because you can't try to make somebody something they don't want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God can't even do that. He doesn't. He tries, but sometimes we're not willing to let him. Yeah. I mean, uh, step back and we'll jump into some principles here. What's the story of you being being called as a as a General 3070? Is there a story behind that? Well, yeah, there's a, I don't know there's a big story about it, but I'll tell Just you. Just a few phone calls and an interview. and. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, we can't, we were, I was a mission president in Bolivia for three years. It was an experience of a lifetime. I'd do it again. That wasn't that was bad. I'd just be better now. Yeah. With all that I've learned. I uh, Being a mission president and being a bishop are great things because you can change lives. I mean, you can always change lives. You don't yeah. need a calling to change lives, but you have... You have keys yeah. that you don't have. It's, it's yeah, easier. access is it's different. Easier, right? It's yeah. easier with priesthood keys, okay? 
And uh, so we loved our time in Bolivia. And the Bolivian people are just humble people. Uh, we used to teach 50 lessons a week. And we had all kind of, because they, they're willing to listen. They just love God. It's a wonderful place. Then we had wonderful missionaries, fearless missionaries. They talked to everybody. They were fearless. But so then we came back and I was helping a nonprofit for a little while, just volunteering. And Marianne didn't think I was busy enough. And so when we were in Bolivia one time, we saw this advertisement about Southern Virginia University. I said, so I said, maybe someday I'll teach there. So Marianne calls the president of Southern Virginia University and said, hey, you need to give my husband a call. He needs more to do. <laughs> so Rod Smith, who turned out to be a wonderful friend of ours. He was the president. He was the uh -huh. president, passed away just, uh, I don't know, of course, time goes by fast, a year or two ago. But that's uh, so what we went out. And I attended their president's council, and the expenses were a million dollars higher than the revenues. And the end of every year, there was a guy that had to put in the money to make up the difference, and they couldn't become a qualified, what do you call it, accredited. Yeah. He could not become accredited because their finances are so bad and so So we got done. I, so we met uh, the day I was out there, and he said, uh, I said, so I'd like to, yeah, I'd consider coming here and teach, and I'd like to also be assistant basketball coach. <laughs> and he said, you know, I said, Don, so as we met, as we were leaving, he said, Don, what I'd really like you to do is get you on the President's Council to start with. Then you can teach and basketball if you want. So I did. And when I got there, they told me there was no way to save money. And I said, give me your 10 best business students. And within nine months, we had saved a million dollars. And we went on to save many more because that's another great principle of leadership. There's always a better way. Mm. You know, I was mentioned earlier, there's this always a better way because you can, you know, you think about the pioneers. They traveled from winter quarters. It took them months to get to Salt Lake. And then came the stagecoach. It took weeks. Then came the train, it took hours, and now it takes the plane with, excuse me, then the train took days, and now it takes two hours. And um, Heavens has helped with invention so that we have more time yeah. to do what the right stuff. Just like doing family history today, it's, oh, it's so much faster. Yeah. yeah. It used to take this much time to get a name, and now it takes this much time. So anyway, so we found, that we, we we were able to do that, and and my students, I still hear from them, they I tried to make all the things we do real life. For example, in my business class, we adopted local businesses. We sent out a flyer. People said, if you want your business to improve, we're willing to adopt you. And so we, we could help businesses improve. Fascinating. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then they were doing real things rather than partial things. So anyway, we were doing that. We loved our time there. It's a beautiful place. It's in the Shenandoah Valley. And uh, we were looking at, uh, I was on the high council. I know I, I was on the high council for missionary work, I think. And we were looking at buying a little home. We were not going to sell our home in Park City, but uh, we, in fact, we'd like a little home that we thought we'd purchase because we were going to stay there for a while. And one afternoon, I'm in my office, and Mary Ann's visiting her brother who had had a problem with his health, and he was in the hospital in New Mexico. So she was down there, and I get a phone call comes in and says, uh, is this uh, Brother Clark? Yes. I said, well, uh, listen, uh, President Hinckley's secretary would like to talk to you. So as Don said, he gets on and says, well, just a minute, President Hinckley would like to talk to you. I said, okay, that sounds great. So, <laughs> so we get on the phone and he says, um, are you willing to dedicate some years of service to the church? I told him we were willing to do that. I say we because Marianne's yeah. the one that really sacrifices. And um, then pretty soon, Brother Tingey, President of the Seventy, called and laid down all the things and that's where we ended. Nice. So President, sure. President Hinckley extended the call and then personally, from there. And, yeah, personally. And that was just a few weeks before general conference, is that? Yeah, it was in, uh, yes. 
then we went out in April. I think it was probably March, probably March. Yeah. We went out to and it changed eternity for then once again, nothing that we would have ever imagined would have happened. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So let's uh, uh, reflect back on that time at uh, Southern Virginia University as far as the, this principle of always a better way. What, how, how else would you impact that? Because I feel like, uh, and, and with a lot of these things, like you were, you're never satisfied with where people are in a good way, right? Because you, you, you know yeah, there's more potential happy. there. See, here's yeah. the problem. I didn't say depressed always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said happy always, content never. Yeah. So in... You've got to find yourself so you're happy. I don't want people to get depressed. Right, right, right. You know, because yeah. and one reason we get sometimes risk is we set these things way up here. We always should talk about being a little bit better. Take us where we are and God will make us a little bit better. Yeah. It's going to take us a long time. I don't know how long it takes. Maybe, who knows, millions of years. I don't know how long it works, right, but it's right. going to take a long time. Especially for me, maybe not so much for you, but <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah. So you approach people that way, but also approach organizations and systems Absolutely. that way. That, that Absolutely. There's more potential in here. Absolutely. We can, we can so, squeeze more so out of this. What I did is I took these 10 business students and uh -huh. I signed them to everything. One to the library, one to the cafeteria, one to the uh, student labor. Anywhere where we had expenses, I assigned them. Bookstore, everywhere. So I said, yeah, you go hang out. You will tell me what's going on. And I want you to look for how would you do it differently? Hmm. So, half of the student labor, they were studying. Okay. We went to the cafeteria. They were open. Nobody's in there. So we cut hours, save money. Cut student labor. They weren't so happy about that. Save yeah. money. Yeah. Bookstore. It was burned by the university. We, we found somebody that would pay it. We were losing money. We found somebody that would pay us to run the bookstore. And everybody wasn't always happy with everything we did. Yeah. Yeah, but, hurt a little bit, right? <laughs> but that's but, how you say it, But right? we did it. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so everything. And so when we ran that company, about 20%, every year we'd try to find $20 million worth of savings. Wow. We had a, what we called our Profit Improvement Committee. And so- And every, this, is in, this is not in Southern Virginia. This no, is this your is a, business. This is okay. a business. Yeah. And every year that we get down to the end of the year and say, oh, there's no way, there's no way to save money anymore. And we get another $20 million. Technology changes. People's ability changes. Everything changes. And so we'd, every year we'd find another 20 million. Hmm. And so it's just like your own personal life. I guarantee you, I can take anybody's personal life and I can find ways for them to save money, yeah. including my own. Yeah. <laughs> and especially when you involve, you know, God and see, you know, just like that quote talks about, when you allow him to, to magnify yeah. those things. And then, right? you, then you allow this, the other thing you have to do in leadership is you have to know the power of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. You know, President Patrick said sometimes we don't use the Holy Ghost. It's just... I just love this quote by President, by Parley P. Pratt. He says, the gift of the Holy Ghost quickens all intellectual faculties, increases, enlarges, expands, purifies all the natural passions and affections, and adapts them by the gift of wisdom to their lawful use. It inspires, develops, cultivates, matures all the fine-toned sympathies, joys, tastes, kindred feelings, and affections of our nature. It inspires virtue, kindness, goodness, tenderness, gentleness, charity. It develops beauty of person, form, and features. I parentheses, puts hair on. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> it tends to health, vigor, animation, social feeling. It invigorates all the faculties of the physical and intellectual man. It strengthens and gives tones to the nerves. In short, as it were, marrow to the bone, joy to the heart, light to the eyes, music to the ears, and life to the whole being. Now, just think what that means to a leader. Yeah. Okay. 
This Holy Ghost has a capability to do what he did with Enoch or Moses or all these leaders, okay? You know, I'm grateful for the, of all the things you need to know is a Holy Ghost has power. And, you know, it's a testator, but it has power to help you. He cares about all aspects of your life. He cares about your family. He cares about your business. He cares about school. He cares about church. He cares about your personal problem. He just cares about everything. And if we'll let him, he'll help us. But to get the Holy Ghost to help you, there's three or four things that are really important. And this is what they are. If one, you must want it and pray for it. Just think, what, did you pray for the Holy Ghost to be with you today? Yeah. Okay. We did before this, uh, That's we were exactly this recording. That's what we did. Yeah. So yeah. maybe it'll turn out better. <laughs> yeah. You must okay. keep your covenants. You must be obedient in it. And you must be diligent and respond as you hear the Holy Ghost. I have a book. It's called My Book of Revelation, and I write things in it. I've learned that if I don't write down what the Holy Ghost helps me want to do, and I don't do it, then he quits speaking to me. Hmm. So I, you need to write things down. You know, Nobody can remember all the things he tells you to do. And once he trusts you that you'll do what he asks you, look out. You got to be careful. You'll be yeah. so busy you won't know what else to do. <laughs> That's but, right. But it makes a huge difference that if you're willing to take that and let him help you. And one of the big questions missionaries always had is, well, how do I know if I feel the spirit or not? So I told him, I said, one thing you do is you need to start. If you have an impression, write it down, do it. It works. Ah, that's hmm. the way it works. Okay. He said, it'll never tell you to do anything that won't make things better. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Anything else as far as the Holy Ghost and that concept or that, no, that makes sense? Enough. Okay. I'm curious as you started that, because I think you started out in the second quarter of the 70, is that right? Yes, I did. And I don't think that, I think now all general authority 70s they are just, just they're, they're whatever they are. I'm not sure. Right, right. Yeah, they're not. But then. Yeah. Uh-huh. Was there a different role or responsibility when you're in the second quorum as opposed to the first quorum or it was just, okay. No. How long you serve. Yeah, yeah. It used to be the second quorum served for five years and uh-huh. that doesn't exist anymore. So it was yeah. kind of a different role for different people. So yeah. uh, you were called around 2006 as in the second quorum. So did you, in 2011, did you sort of feel like you were, things were wrapping up and then they asked well, you I to Then I got, a, you know, I got a call and said, hey, now you're going to. In fact, the call was by President Erkdorf and it was over Skype because we were still in Guatemala. Oh, nice. Nice. So during that time as a 70, um, I mean, what... How did you approach that calling? Because I, I guess the, a good way to look at this, I remember going from being a bishop to into the state presidency, and it was a different dynamic. But I sort of, you know, I wanted as a bishop, I was I had a one-to-one connection with so many people. It just wasn't possible on the a higher up level. So how did you approach your leadership from that general level as opposed to that the, well, the other callings you've had? Well, there's two sides of callings. And I think sometimes we get the we get it backwards. We're a minister first, and then we're an administer second. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you about my what I was called a state president. Can I go back? Yeah, let's do it. So I'm a, state, I'm a new state president, so I'm trying to figure out what a good state presidents do. So everywhere I'd be, I'd talk to people. Tell me about your state. What does a state do for you? And it was quite interesting. They'd say, well, they take the best people that work in the stake, or they have speakers come, they give announcements. So I asked my mother. My mother was 80-some-odd years old and probably about 85. I said, Mom, what does your state do? Oh, said Don, you can't imagine what our state does for us. She said, we have this high councilman, Don. Last week was Valentine's Day. He brought cookies to 50 widows in the ward. He said, he knows all of us by name. He said, he's there early and he welcomes us to the meeting. He said, he serves in the choir. He sings in our choir. She said, oh, you can't. He, this guy is, 
So I said, good, give me his name. I call him. I said, brother so-and-so, this is Don Clark, and I'm Gladys Clark's son. And so, yes, thank you for calling. I said, my mother, my mother just talked about what kind of high councilman you are. Oh, he said, uh, I said, you know, you're just off the charts. He said, this is what I tell my stake president. He said, if every high councilman would reactivate one person every month, we'd have 144 people more coming to church in a year. I've never seen a stake that had 144 go up. All of a sudden, I said, I got it. Our, high, our, our stake high council meetings changed. What we talked about is ministering. We wanted to know what they had done to minister. Oh, we got the announcements out, and we got the talks given. But our high council became ministers. I still looked at myself as a 70 as a minister. Mm. Okay? I went, and I was there one year, and then I became president of Central America. And... Um, you know, I think people would tell you that I was around the office more than any, as much as anybody ever. They knew that they were important to us. The employees, I think we, I think we probably doubled their productivity. I shouldn't say that, but that's probably the fact. Because mm -hmm. it mattered what we produced. Because I said, we, our job is, here's the priorities of the area. Our job in the office is to make sure these happen. We're going to do all we can. This is not just a, the, the bishops and all the state presidents do this. We do this because you're the ones that have the funds to help support what we're going. So we tied them into where the area was going, and, and it was a wonderful deal. I, we loved our time in Guatemala. We, Like I say, it's my favorite yeah. country in all of Central and South America. And uh, what you have to do is just, it's just like our senior missionaries. We had about 20-some-odd couples of senior missionaries, and it didn't matter to me their offering was good for me. Some wanted to work 10 hours a day. That was great. If some wanted to work six, that was great for me. I would take their offering. I would just tell them, if you ever complain, if you ever complain that you didn't have enough to do, then I will bury you. I said, you'll, get, you'll have more stuff than you ever yeah. know what to do. Yeah. But I would take their offering. Almost all the couples came for 18, stayed for 23. Nice. Nice. And so, you know, stepping in that role, seeing yourself first as a minister with, you know, there's the whole, you know, that whole area, how do you decide who you're going to minister to? Do you start with just your day-to-day -day office or was there well, anything, any method to that? I'm going to tell you the story of uh, Marcos Tucan. Right. Tucan. So when we get to there, we, we have a, we have a shoeshine boy and he stays for a little while. He's not a very good shoeshine boy. And, <laughs> but and so he quits. And so our secretaries come into the office one day, our assistant, I guess you call him and there's a shoeshine boy out on the street, so she brings him in, Marcos. Marcos had come from the hills of Guatemala. His dad had come to sell fruit in the city. His sister was cleaning houses, and Marcos was a shoeshine boy to try to make enough money to help the family in the mountains. Hmm. So he became our shoeshine boy. Uh, he was a great shoeshine boy. Never would look at us. Never. But over time, things eternity changed for Marco. Because here's what happened. He had dropped out of school because he didn't have any money, so we sent him to school on Saturdays. He became the number one student on Saturdays hmm. to get his high school degree. Then what we did is, well, then we started sending him to church. So just before we left, we, I, I had the opportunity to baptize Marco, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Then they had him, they, we hired him in the office. And he started wearing a white shirt and tie. His dad couldn't even fathom how he'd wear a white, wear a white shirt and tie to work. <laughs> but he came in the office. Then he gets called on a mission. He goes on a mission to El Salvador. He goes on the mission that has Belize 
in the mission. He gets assigned to Belize. What does Belize do? Speaks English. Yeah. Marco lives in English. He now works for a call center. He owns this couple of stores. He's now moved up in the mountains back, and he has a bunch of chickens. I mean, Trinity's changed for Marco. But he wouldn't even look at us the first time. Huh. So you minister who God puts in your path. Yeah. Now, this business of people say pray for missionary experiences every day. Pray that God will put in your path so that you can be an instrument in his hands. Yeah, that's powerful. Love and so that. you have to, you know, I gave a conference talk, and this story is really important because my grandfather was a blind farmer. So he became Same a blind, patriarch. Same patriarch, but he became he was a blind farmer. In the 1920s, there was an economic crisis in the United States. He owed $195 on taxes on the farm. He had no money, but he'd sold some stuff. So he went with my uncle, Gerald, to collect the money. Everybody was just like he was. Nobody had any money. He gets home about the 15th of December and tells the kids, gathers the kids around him, and said, we're probably going to lose the farm. Now, bigger story to that is the guy, the assessor of the taxes, was willing to postpone the taxes if he would put his name on the welfare rolls of the church, of the, of the county. Wouldn't do it. So that day, a letter arrived in the mail. My mother, 12 years of age, went to the mailbox, took it to my grandmother. My grandmother opens the letter. This is what it said. My grandfather's name was Larson. Dear Brother Larson, I feel like you have financial problems, and if you do, I have money to help you. Sign Jim Drinkwater. Now, Jim Drinkwater was a little crippled man, never married, never held any position in the church that anybody would thought was important. What Jim Drinkwater was is a guy that God could trust. Hmm to help a blind farmer. So my grandfather went with my uncle to Jim Drinkwater's house. This is what Jim Drinkwater said. He said, yesterday morning, I got a wireless message from heaven that you needed help. And if you do, here's $200. He took the $200, he paid the taxes. And with $5, he bought shoes for the kids for Christmas. Hmm. The farm's still in our family. My cousin owns it. But I thought, Jim Drinkwater... You know, just think, nobody would have guessed that a little crippled guy had $200. Nobody had any money. But God knew. And more importantly, Jim was willing. Yeah. Someday I'll meet Jim Drinkwater. He won't be a little crippled guy anymore. I think he'll probably be high on the who's important in heaven. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, so now let's go on. So, uh, yeah, so how yeah. do you minister? So, so you do. You just you pray about it. You look for people. My wife's a phenomenal minister. You know, I mean, we were... A few years ago, we were assigned, plus you never give up. You never give up. We were assigned to visit a lot of people that, a lot of people in Park City that come up here because they really don't want anything to do with the church. So our inactive roles are really quite large. Mm. So they gave me some people to visit. So uh, we got our list, and there was Sister Marriott, Karen Marriott, uh, Dick Marriott's daughter, was a relief side president for years, and she was, she knew everything about everybody. I mean, she was a, Minister of ministers. So I, I'm going to call her. I said, well, what do you know about Cresta? Oh, Cresta. She hates men. <laughs> she had never been in her house. So I said, all right. Okay. Good. Well, so I always would take Marianne with me. That's my secret weapon. So it's my <laughs> wife. And so so we go knock on Cresta's door. The first time, we, because you never call. If you call, they'll tell you no. And then you know, I'll tell you yeah. another story about that. Then you're dead. You're uh -huh. finished right, over. Right. So we knock on the door, and so eventually her son answers the door. It's a nice kid, so we talk to him. And she's not home or not feeling good, and so fine. So we keep going back. And so finally we show one day up at her door on her birthday with a birthday present. Krista answers the door this day. 
We spent 20 minutes on the doorstep. Today, you can't imagine what's happened. She's been very sick. We've been able to help her. We go see her all the time. We just Her mother just died. It's just unbelievable how, because she needed to be loved. Yeah. She needed to be loved. And that's all she needed. You don't need to bring up the church. We pray, okay? But she's not active yet. But I guarantee you that she knows that the representatives of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint love her. That she knows. Yeah. Independent of whether she's active or less active or anything. And um, another story about that. So I get another guy's name. His name is Richie Giles. So Richie Giles lives out here by the reservoir. And he lives in a locked-up building. And I've tried to get in two or three times. I could not get in. So eventually, <laughs> yeah. Saturday afternoon, I'm sitting up there. I said, Marianne, I'm going to call this guy. So I call him. And I get him on the phone. I said, uh, I don't know. I said, Rich, this is Don Clark, and I've been assigned to be your minister. Listen, I don't want anything to do with this church. Click. Marianne said, that was really effective, wasn't it? <laughs> so I go to bed that night. I still have the message on my phone. I get a text from Richie Giles. He said, I'm sure you're a good guy. I'm sorry about today. He said, I'm a better person than that. And then it says a couple other things. So, so I write back. I said, it's okay if we text. So we start texting. Yeah. So, you know, I'd say, how's it going? Did you have a good Thanksgiving? So eventually, and then eventually Christmas comes. I said, Richie, can I bring you a gift? He said, I can bring you a gift. He said, yeah, you can bring me a gift. You can bring the gift to my business. It's in Heber. I had no idea what his business was. So I show up at his business. He's a barber. The day I showed up, I needed a haircut. I said, Rich, you got time right now for a haircut. He's my barber now. I go over to Hebrew every week. I don't have a problem. We, we talk about the church. We talk about his mission. We talk about all this stuff and politics. He, he likes to talk about politics. But, but we've come, I mean, we're friends. Yeah. Okay. And I see him all the time because every time I need a haircut. Now, you're going to say you don't need a haircut very often. That may be true. <laughs> but, I mean, so, and that just took, it takes time. You can't go away. Ministering is... A journey. It's not an event. Yeah. And it doesn't work out all the time. It's a journey, not an event, for it's, sure. It's and a it, journey. And, and people, everybody needs somebody. And, and we can all be that somebody, right? We have potential. If we'll let heaven help us, we have potential to be that somebody. Yeah. Before we wrap up, any other principal point or concept or story? Uh, I don't want to skip anything. So Let me just, uh, a couple of things that are really important. I, yeah. I just want to go back and talk about Marianne and, you know, as I said, the chapters, look what she did with me, but who you marry and, and how your relationship on that journey just is so important. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's just good and, you know, and she's always been so supportive. And when you go to somewhere like South America, Guatemala, Guatemala is, a, there's three countries that have the highest murder rates in the world per capita, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Wow. Those are ours. So she couldn't go out and do everything. And so she sits home and all that stuff. And, you know, if you're a general authority, you get to go all this stuff all the time. And always you couldn't take your wife. And so they're the ones that really are the ones that sacrifice. Yeah. But they're the mothers and the grandmothers. So I just, you know, who that partner is. You know, I, if I'd had somebody that had to live in Utah, I don't know that the thing would have ever turned out the same. I'm not sure it would have. I don't know. God can make it turn out any way he wants, but it's just, I'm not sure. Yeah. So we loved being in the mission field. The other thing you, that I would encourage people to do is they need to adopt people into their families. In Utah, it's so easy to just just have a family thing. And so I used to tell my missionaries, I said, when you get home, 
you tell your dad and your mom that you have to have somebody come for Thanksgiving and Christmas and all those and Easter. Yeah. So uh, we had a sister that got home and she said, I said, and if they won't do it, then just tell them you can't come. <laughs> so we had a sister that get home. Some people may not like all this stuff. My, my wife will edit some, but anyway. So we had a sister got home and she it was just before Thanksgiving. She said, Dad, we got to have somebody for Thanksgiving. He said, no, this is your first time home. We just want the family. She said, no, we got to have somebody. So I can't come if you don't. So they had somebody. Uh -huh. I'm going to tell you a story about our family. So we used to have at Christmas Eve, we used to have probably 40-some-odd um, people in our home for Christmas Eve. Christmas in New Canaan was a, we lived in New Canaan, Connecticut. It was a wonderful place. They had Christmas caroling. And so we'd go Christmas caroling. I would barely make any of that because I was still in retail and we're still trying to get the stores to do a little more business. And then we'd have a zone of missionaries, maybe 20 missionaries. And then we'd have a Kermajads or an Iranian family. We'd have Ruin Redden and we had Bill Toomey and his mother. We had all these people that, that they became ours. And so every Christmas, that's what they'd do that. And in fact, I'll show you a gift that Bill Toomey gave us. It's a phenomenal. He didn't have a lot of money, but he went to all these garage sales. And I'll show you before you leave. But anyway, it was a phenomenal deal. That So one time uh, we had four kids away at college, I think, or at least three. And so Christy came home about Christmas time and said, what are we going to do on Christmas Eve? And Marianne said, well, everybody's been away. So I think we're just going to, I think we're just going to have the family this Christmas Eve. And then Christy says, what will Bill do? And his mother, what will the Krimdichats do? What will Rune do? Needless to say, we had all the people. Yeah. Because Christy had come to know that the way you get close to heaven is help his children. That's why missionaries will tell you that mission was so great. It wasn't so great all the food or great all the walking or whatever it was, <laughs> yeah. but it was a people. So what you have to do is this all has to be about people, and that's what happened to our high council. People became their mission, not an announcement or a boring talk. People <laughs> became the mission. And so they got to help people. They got to help a kid prepare to go on a mission. They got to help a new convert come in and all that stuff. And so one of my great things, I loved about being Brink State President, Every week, I'd go to a different ward and visit the prospective elders with the elders corn president. And, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it's just like, you know, you think, when's the last time the bishop was in your home to even visit, okay? Yeah. Okay? It matters. Yeah. At least yeah. for most of them. Maybe not for some. You mentioned just that, uh, you know, the journey that, you know, all these callings have taken you and your wife on. And, and that's always sort of a, a tough dynamic that isn't talked about a lot is infusing purpose in the life of your companion, you know, whether it's as a general authority, as a stake president, that the, you know, your wife's at home and maybe doesn't feel as engaged. So any advice you give to leaders as far sure, as the sure. purpose of the, their spouse? Uh, uh, two or three things that I think are really important. We've always had a date every week. Okay. And if you take the kids with you, it's not called a date. It's called babysitting. <laughs> okay. okay. So we have. Okay. And so that happened when I was at 70. It happened when I was, you know, and I'll say every, I won't say every, but vast majority. Yeah. And we did things. The other thing that we did is we tried to have wonderful family vacations. Okay. We don't know a lot of toys, but we, we have family vacations. So we do that. And so those things, you know, we will have a book upstairs on most of our family vacations. And I tell everybody, my family is my wealth. And, you know, you got to remember that Family is the most important organization in time and eternity. If it isn't working right, 
then you're going to have a hard time getting the other stuff to work right. That's why in priority, it's heaven, your relationship with heaven, then your relationship with your family. So you've got to spend time on that. Okay. And I'm not, I was, I'm sure I'm far from perfect. I used to tell people when I was a bishop, I show me the size of your tongue. I knew whether you had a good marriage if you bit your tongue a lot and didn't say what you thought. Okay. <laughs> so I've improved on that over time. Okay. But you've got to, you got to take time. You know, we always hold family prayer we, every night. Tonight we will read in the Book of Mormon, Mary every night. Doesn't matter what time. And we'll pray together. And tonight we're on Alma chapter 45. And that's where we're at. Yeah. And because the Book of Mormon is the most correct book. So we said, he come follow me during the day. But at night, we go to the book, the book that uh, Sister Potoma was one of our missionaries. And one time she came to me, she hugged the book and she said, President Clark, I love the Book of Mormon. When I have free time, I read the Book of Mormon. Hmm. So I've always said, uh, you know, how good am I at loving the Book of Mormon? So I think you have to do that. And you also have to help. You've got to be involved in being the father of the children as you're going along. You yeah. can't you can't just make that go away, okay? Our kids work together. We, Marianne had grown up in a family that had a boat. So we're in Connecticut, and you know we didn't have boats. We couldn't afford a boat. And so she says, we, I want to buy a boat. So we bought a boat, one of the best things we ever did. It hmm. wasn't a great big boat, but all the kids, it didn't matter the age, everybody loved the boat. I don't know that I ever drove the boat. I don't think I ever drove the boat. I think Marianne always drove the boat. <laughs> now, people say, not a very good husband, but Marianne always drove the boat. <laughs> yeah. But with the boat, it turned out to be a good deal. And it was Marianne's suggestion, of, okay? So you have to support them in, you also have to make sure they have things to do. Because I mean, now, you know, right now we serve together in the prison, so we always go together. Yeah, right now, when we run, when I was mission presence, we were together most of the time. Maybe she didn't want to be together as much all of the time, but anyway, you have to try yeah. to do that. But you just, and you have to, so you, you show by where you spend your time and your money what's important. Hmm. Love it. Elder Clark, this has been fantastic so much. I'm sure uh, many will listen to this a few times to hopefully absorb as much as, much as possible. And, uh, any other final thought, or I got one more question for you, but anything else we missed that uh, you want to make sure we hit on? Do you have another question? I got one, one final one. George, so I have one. I have one final thing I want to do, but go ahead well, first. No, you go first. It might well, I want to bear my testimony. Oh, please. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I uh, want everybody to know that listens that I know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is God's kingdom on the earth. I'm grateful that God has called a prophet in our day to restore the church. Joseph Smith, you look behind me, there's a picture that's, yeah. it matters deeply to me what Joseph did. I, I love Joseph and I love Emma for what they did, the sacrifices they went through so that we could have our today. I'm grateful for the book, the Book of Mormon. Joseph said it was the most correct book upon the earth and that a man or woman would get near to God by abiding by his precepts and by any other book. And I know that that's true. I'm grateful for President Nelson. I've had opportunities to associate with him because of, he was over the missionary department when I served there, and he is such a kind man. One of Marianne's most sacred experiences. We had just been called. We're in Guatemala. He's coming to visit. We're waiting at the chapel. He walks in. He grabs Marianne's hand, looks in her eyes, and says, How's Queen Marianne today? That's the prophet of God. And I'm thankful because he's my prophet. But that which is most sacred to me is my testimony of Jesus Christ. Mm. I love him. I need him. And I'm grateful the Father sent him for me. 
And I know that someday he'll come in all his glory and reign personally up here upon the earth. My only hope and prayer for me and my family is that we'll be found worthy, having repented of our sins and having been more like the Savior, be able to be there. It's been a great opportunity. I really appreciate that you would come. And yeah. snowing outside right now, and that it's been a good thing. I yeah, these are good for me because I'll, I'll be a better person because you came today. Oh well, thank you. Appreciate that. I will. And I think my last question really uh, dovetails well with your testimony is as you reflect on your life of leadership and the different leadership, both, you know, responsibilities you've had professionally and in the church, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Okay. First of all, let me just comment on the first part. I think that I've come to know that, um, you know, if we want, if we become like him, then we're all, when we're better leaders. Now that's not always easy to do. I, when I took over this company that had all these problems, I'm sure there's times that I wasn't very Christ-like, and I, I regret it because we had to get things fixed, and I regret some of the things. And but I, I am thankful for His grace for me, and that He has allowed me to learn along this journey. Being a leader allows you to kind of reflect upon on what really is important to you. Are the people more important, or are you more important? And it's not always easy to keep that separated. It's not always easy. So you have to keep going back and talking about him. And, you know, I was listening to, a, I'm listening to a book right now by Millet, and he talks about that, you know, it's, it's not easy to keep yourself out of the lamplight. He tells a story. He said, I, people come, one person come up to me after a speech and said, oh, you never cease to amaze me. And then he said to the person, the spirit was good to us tonight, wasn't it? rather than thank you very much and kind of puffing up. And so I think you always have to go back and look at him and measure him against you. Because if you don't, you kind of get yourself and pride comes up. Just look at the Book of Mormon times, pride. These were good people. And all of a sudden, they became more important than everybody else. And that's why hanging out at the prison is so good for us. Because I look at them and I said, if all that had happened in their lives had happened to me, where would I be? Sometimes people used to say to me when I was bishop, well, how can so-and-so be like that? And I would say, you know, you get to know them. You'd be lucky that they're even that good with all the problems they've had. And so it helps you look at people perspectively from, from everybody's on a journey to get to him. And that's why if you, can, if you ever can get your focus, and I'm not, as very, I'm not as perfect at it or as good as I should be, focus that my job here is to become like him. And everything that I do that doesn't help me do that, I've kind of got to get a, get that out of my place. And I'm, that's what I'm working at. And I'm sure I'm a long ways from it. But I, I know the great example. And I know that he loves me. And I know that he cares what kind of leader I have been. And I know sometimes he's been pleased. And I'm sure sometimes he hasn't been very pleased. And for those times that he hasn't, I'm sorry. And I try to repent of those. And remember, go to leadingsaints.org slash 14 to access our full Young Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the only, only true and living church upon the face of the earth, 
we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.